Now into the labyrinth of mad child's amusement. More intense than The Shining, you're in a difficult course. Feel the pressure from all angles of Prev's centrifugal force. Unremorseful sorcery firing flames more frequent and strengthen the attacker and black magic clashing in sequence. My activities are extracurricular. One particular immaculate masculine muscular rap spectacular. Cohesion casting curses and articulate verses. People in glass houses don't throw stones. Continue podcast. Hello, everybody. <laughs> That's a deep... I, I feel like I, I went outside of the typical slow jam purview. Yeah, what, what was that one? That is consumption by swollen members which is <laughs> i feel like one of these days you're gonna stealth drop like an icp song just like sneak it in <laughs> <laughs> fucking mad magnets how do they work how do they work I mean, we're okay, not hold on whoa it's not that kind of show <laughs> uh Hello, everybody. Welcome to Continue Podcast, episode 34. My name is Anthony John Agnello, and with me today is Staff Roberts, Dave Roberts. My face is tired. Everybody's face <laughs> is tired. It's, it's just, it's literally the entire globe is just tired faces, top to bottom. I, that's, I, the, that's, 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 that's the song by the Mad World, uh, by the, the Mad World. It's the All I See Are Tired oh, Faces. Yeah. Oh, you mean the Gears of War song? Right, the Gears of War song. Yeah, Cliffy B wrote it himself (laughs) and handed it to a sad, bald, white guy. (laughs) And uh, Tears for Fears is like, hey, wait a minute. And then they were... Uh, Dave, are you familiar with the the geological age of the planet Earth called the Permian Age? You're familiar with the Permian Age? Is Is that like a hair thing? It's the second period of sort of geological existence and life. It's the second period of life before the second great mass extinction in human history. Okay. And and the Permian Age ends in the most catastrophic thing like the Earth has ever gone through. Uh and it, it it was like the one moment where the whole life thing on planet Earth came the closest to ending. Uh, forgive me, I said the second. It's the third geological age. And the great thing about the Permian Age is that there had been previous geological ages where there was life on the planet. And so there was this this amazing, rich fossil layer of of you know carbon dense dead animals and and mush and goo. Trees weren't really a thing yet, so like it wasn't like fossilized plant life, but you know, just a huge dense layer of oil and the things that we make cars go boom with now was all in there. However, most of the land masses were still like giant supercontinents. Pangaea wasn't a thing yet. And uh very, you know, giant continents with not a whole lot of plant life on them but some life land life was getting its 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 shit going and anyway during this period what is now russia and china and australia pretty much all of that was one, and and a huge chunk of the arctic was all one giant continent. Yeah, Pangaea. Okay, yeah. No, no, not, no this is pre-Pangaea. No, pre-Pangaea. There's, okay. there's no global continent at this point, but huge landmass. 
And so anyway, at one point, basically everything under Russia and China and all of these continents was just like dense ass oil, just chilling. And all the creepy giant fish that lived there, they didn't have cars, so they didn't give a fuck about all that oil. And so it's just sitting there, and then volcanoes in the Earth's crust just erupted, causing basically every explosion that you can possibly imagine to happen all at once. Basically, the entire Asian continent exploded at the exact same fucking time releasing so much carbon into the air that everything was just dead within a couple thousand years. So it's a Steve Aoki show. It's a Steve Aoki show. <laughs> it's 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 a Michael Bay film on the grandest scale possible. The Emmerich era. So the, yeah, yes, the the Roland the true Roland Emmerich era. And the end of the Permian age, I would imagine was the last time that this many living things on the planet were just like, oh, God, why is any of this happening? That's the long walk we just went on. Yeah, we, just, I, uh, I we had to contest. I was about to say it's like a Permian age around uh, the United States of America these days, and then I realized I had to contextualize all of that. That rant, everybody, is the kind of thing that's going to happen on this episode. Susan is unfortunately sitting this one out. She will be back for the next episode. Uh, so it's just Dave and I today. And appropriately enough, we have a piping hot plate of Dave and Anthony topics <laughs> to talk about. Yeah, like, it, it didn't mean to work out this way. It's just happening. It's but just, it did? Yeah, we didn't do it on purpose. It's just Japanese games, Japan towning all the way down. It's it's not our fault. That's what's out and what's interesting. Yeah, right? I mean, like Japan feels back in a way that they haven't been since the PS2 era. Yeah, and yeah. I, like I mean, like we felt that before the last like couple years, like when Nier and uh, Final Fantasy 15 and other other games that have have come out from from Japan. But it, it feels like we've hit sort of a, a critical mass that like. Yakuza Zero doing way better than anyone expected. Mm -hmm. And uh, companies like Sega, who are bringing games to, like, games that you think would pass over America. Like, I never thought, like, after they skipped Valkyria Chronicles 30, I never thought we'd get four here, but here we are. Yeah, we get, we uh, get Valkyria Chronicles 4 and Fist of the North Star within yeah. one week of each yeah. other. Yeah, Fist of the North Star, that's another one that I thought that would just be like, like, I don't know, maybe Exceed would pick it up if they somehow got the rights to it, right. you know? But like, yeah, it's, uh, for someone who enjoys playing weird Japanese games, it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you talked about this on uh, the last episode just a little bit, uh, and we talked about the game because I had just started it and Susan was well into it and you were really starting to enjoy it. But now you have beaten it. Yes. You finished Dragon Quest XI. I wouldn't even call Dragon Quest XI a weird Japanese game. It's like no. the most... It is the most... most <laughs> traditional... Warm blanket of yeah. Japanese role-playing games. Uh, but, like, one of the things that struck me about that game 
is that it is very trope heavy. Like it is very clear that because this is the first game in the series that I've beaten, but I yeah. I know of Dragon Quest and I know that it is very much like here are your stock Toriyama characters. Here are your stock you like stock Toriyama slash anime characters. You got like, the spiky haired guy. Yeah, this guy looks kind of like Goku. This guy <laughs> looks kind of like Trunks. This guy looks kind of like Cell, but they're not. You yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, and like the way that Dragon Quest sort of elevates itself above those tropes. There, there's a purple guy with a is, fish mouth. There's always yeah. like, yeah. 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 Uh, just like, and the way that it elevates itself above those, uh, above those tropes is in how it remixes them and how it subtly sort of betrays your expectations at very important moments. Now, I'm not going to get into spoilers here too much. Uh, but there are some very like like some surprisingly moving moments in that game that happen mm. with its characters that are like normally kind of stock you know mm-hmm. anime fantasy going on an adventure type characters, but the things happen to them that you're like oh you're actually going there okay and that's like that's that's cool it's like I see that stuff and I'm like I get. I get why people love Dragon Quest. Like yeah. this is it. And one of yeah, the things the impressive the impressive yeah. thing for the entire series is that Dragon Quest does have a tradition of being very 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 familiar, very very comfortable, but also subtly pushing boundaries in a way that is not really ostentatious so you don't really notice it yeah like it's, it, like, it's one of those games that like I and, and I hate throwing this around because it's like the, the idea that something doesn't get good until you're, like, 15. So like, a lot of people were crapping on this Polygon article that, like, Assassin's Creed Origins doesn't get good until 15 hours in, and it's like, motherfucker, I don't got that kind of time. Right, right. But there is something to be said of a game that is slowly building on top of itself. Oh, yeah. To yeah. then, like, once you're used to the things that you're, you've been presented with, to then take something away. Or to shuffle things up in a way that, like that, these the that you can then look at it and go, oh, I now I see where you're going with this. Yeah, I mean, we talked, we've talked about this so many times. Like the length, the ideal length of a game is whatever length suits the game you're making. Yeah. Like, guess what? And this is the the continue go to example of a game that has a really long ramp up and it's purposeful. Is Persona, Persona Four, Persona Five, both games where you know you're you're in there for eight to ten hours before you even understand all of the different systems that are going to be at play, but it's all very purposeful. And like a game like Dragon Quest, even Dragon Quest Eleven, I you know played the first ninety minutes. Uh, I got to that <laughs> the intro sequence. Yeah, that that, you warned how do you like that take. that late title card? That, two that hours sweet. into the game. <laughs> That title card that I got to, at, it was it was one hour, 31 minutes. And I was like, oh, okay, finally. Uh, and, like, I wasn't all in. And I'm, I'm a Dragon Quest player from way back in the day. This is one of my all-time favorite series. And uh, on a previous incarnation of the show, we talked a lot about how I'm willing to stick with Dragon Quest under its most boring circumstances. <laughs> uh but this one, I was like, you know what? I'm not really feeling it. And then you get through what is ostensibly the first real quest in the game after the title sequence. 
and there's time travel shit happening. Yeah. And it gets it gets super heartfelt. It gets super heartfelt really quickly. Uh, and then I was all in. Uh, the thing that really impressed you about the game after finishing it, though, Dave, uh, and I feel I feel like us talking about Final Fantasy XV is inevitable once we dig deeper into this subject. <laughs> but it's the fact that y- you finished the story, the game game, yeah. in about 60 hours. Yeah, it was about 50, 50 hours, yeah. 50 hours, and then yeah. it just keeps on going. Yes. So without, again, without spoilers, it, it's uh, this information is out there in reviews uh, and such. But basically, you finish the game around 50 to 60 hours. You roll credits. Credit the game goes like okay, congratulations, you have completed your quest, and then it says to be continued, and a little star appears next to your save file, and you, you load it up. Dogs. And you load it up, and there's like another twenty hours of gameplay, um, and with like you know I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but it's one of those things where it's like, no, you don't have to do it. But it's you should do it because it's you know it's still part of the story and it like also recontextualizes a lot of the things that you've seen up to that point. But it's still like if you had not continued past that point, you would have still gotten a satisfactory conclusion. Mm. And like it's a, this idea of this sort of the post credits epilogue slash second chapter or whatever you want to call it like i love this shit yeah (laughs) and it's like it's almost like the surprise is gone by this point because so many games have done it um like like, dragon Dragon quest 8 does it yeah apparently like i was looking this up and like dragon quest is like one of the on the you know inimitable tv tropes that it, it is the the trope genesis more or less that like the first game you finish the game and you can walk around and talk to people after the game is over yeah um so yeah and like i I don't know even though i've seen this sort of thing before even though it's like okay the game's not really over but it's like i still love it because it's the kind of thing that only games can get away with yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's like movies try to do it. They have the post-credit stinger, and that's more or less just like a quick scene at the end of a credit sequence of a Marvel movie to set up the next Marvel movie. I'm so done with post-credit scenes, man. Like, yeah, I, I I was done with post-credit scenes. Like by the time Matrix. Re- re- oh my god! Happened. No, like, Fer- I, Ferris Bueller did it. Like Ferris Bueller, they did it, and then like no one's topped it since. Yeah, that's the best. And really weird, really weird early example is 1987. Hammer Films, Masters of the Universe, the He-Man movie. Wow. <laughs> you get you get to the end of it. Dolph Lundgren throws freaking Frank Frank Langella off a. Of, podium he straight up emperor palpatines him into a pit you get to the end of the credits frank langella pops up out of a pool of water i guess he survived the fall and frank langella looks at the screen he's like i'll be back and it's everyone everyone knows how uh lengthy that masters of the universe franchise lasted how how many films (laughs) got made and adventures that dolph lundgren went on 
Dolph Lundgren and, and Courtney Cox living the dream together thanks to their post-credits scene. So yeah, like, yeah. I don't, it just it got me thinking about like how much I love the even even when I'm not surprised by it anymore, how much like how how much I like having that because it really does feel like 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 the game's pulling the rug out from under you. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite examples of this was um, Metal Gear Solid Four. It's not an, a gameplay sequence. But it's like okay, so you've you've defeated spoilers from Metal Gear Solid Four, ten year old game with the ten years, clip, yeah, ten years later with the with the God, that game is ten years old, isn't it? <laughs> oh my God, it sure is. Oh my God. Oh it, my God. And apparently it was like wasn't it was set in like 2015 and they were still using click wheel iPods. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you get to the end. You get to the end of this game that has already sort of upended your expectations. A couple times with the, like the locations it sends you, like you go to Eastern Europe and do like a tailing sequence in this foggy little villa. Um, then you go back to Shadow Moses, and then you do the fight with Liquid Ocelot, and you get this cutscene that wraps everything up, and then the credit sequence starts, and then you see a voice that says or a voice credit that says Big Boss, and then the I forget the actor who plays him, but and then his name, you're like. Wait, what the big boss wasn't in this game? What? And then the screen pauses on the name, and you're like, "Oh shit!" And then like the final boss of the game starts, and it's a 45 minute cutscene. But like that moment was just so. As someone who was a fan of that series and like not expecting that at all, but just completely blown away by it. And he sensed tried to copy that with like peace walker and phantom pain phantom pain is like 50 credit sequel like one after every mission and then the uh like three different times that game ends or does it um he's never really topped that feeling in my mind but i don't know like what how do you feel about the the post credits game sequence do you think it's effective you know the funny thing is is this this is like length. It depends yeah. on how you're deploying it. Uh, I freaking love in the original Dragon Quest. Like the very first Dragon Quest starts, and the very like you're in the throne room of a castle, and the king is saying to you like, "Look, man, I know you say you're the descendant of the legendary hero, but like, I don't know, man. Whatever. We've tried everything. My daughter is kidnapped by a dragon." Go take care of it. And that is it. The beginning of the game is the expectation of you're going to save the princess. And one of the most interesting things about the original Dragon Quest is, you know, like your your sort of classic RPG, you're set out into the world, there's a town to the north of the castle, you get up there, you get in your first fights, you level up a little, and then you can suddenly buy new, better armor, etc. Like, all of the RPG tropes that we associate with JRPGs now do start to get codified in Dragon Quest 1, all the way back in 1986. They're all there, and they're great. But, as much as Dragon Quest was like, I'm gonna take wizardry and make it accessible, it was also doing really interesting things, even in 1986, with dramatic incident. Because in order to get from the continent that you start on 
to the continent that is below it, where there's like better armor and uh, gold golems to raise a lot of money and all that sort of stuff. You have to pass through it, and uh, in the original Dragon Quest, you use a torch to light your way. If you go into a cave, it's completely dark, and all you can see is the one sort of NES tile that you're on. If you use a torch or a spell, you can see a larger area. And if you light up a torch in this first cave to get to the second continent, you can see the, like, locked-off area where the princess is. Like, early. Huh. It's like, oh shit, there she is. But if you try to enter that, like, you have a key, you can unlock the door, you try to enter this cell in the cave where the princess is, you're attacked by dragon. That's it. A green dragon. It's the first dragon you see in the game Dragon Quest. And it will kick the <laughs> shit out of you. And so you think to yourself, you're like, oh, it's Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior in the United States. The dragon is what I need to kill, save the princess. Traditional. I love right. it. Bonus. You go to the southern continent, you get all your gear, you're strong now. You go back, you fight the dragon, you kill the dragon. And then you save the princess. And I still can't believe that a game from 1986 does this. They actually, like, the pixel of your character changes to a pixel that is carrying her. And you carry her all the way back to the castle, all the way back to that throne room that you start in. And you deliver her. The king is like, thank you. You've done it. You killed the dragon. This is dope. And the princess says to you, thank you so much. I can't believe you did this. I was engaged before. Fuck that guy. I'm marrying you. I love you forever. And whenever you talk to her after that, she's like, I love you. And the knight that she was engaged to is in the room. And when you talk to him for the rest of the game, he's like, I hate you. Die. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, it's intense. But that's not the end of the game. It's You play this entire game and then you find out that there's the big bad there's the Dragon Lord, and you need to track down the Dragon Lord and how to get to him and how to kill him. And so about two-thirds of the original Dragon Quest is itself a post-game sequence. Like right. You, you did the traditional adventure, and now you're going on this whole other big thing. Well, it's like even the first Final Fantasy kind of does that. Yeah. Too, yeah. where they, like, the very first thing that you do, they, it's like, hey, save this princess... And then you do it, yeah. and you're like, okay, and then you go on another adventure, and there's, like, a whole thing about how, like, what, isn't the boss that, like, kidnapped the princess the boss of the final game? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, from, from the past or the future? I, anyway. Gar Garland or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that's a cool name for a boss. Super cool. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, like, and, and I, like, I love that shit, because it's the kind of thing, like I said before, it's the kind of thing that only games can do. Like, you have someone like David Cage. I'm invoking the Cage. We're 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 there already. Who just he it's first segment of the show, and we're invoking he David he wants to you know he has this grand design for wanting to make games more emotive, to make them more like film, you know. Mm -hmm. Which and like I had aspirations like that too when I was like 21 and watching Quentin Tarantino movies, right? Like, you're like, oh, games are art, man. They need to be appreciated like film. And it's like, if all we're doing is aping film, mm -hmm. then games aren't being their best selves. 
right. which you need to embrace the format of the game and betray players' expectations by doing the thing. Like, the way that you can use length to mess with players' sense of progression with pacing, with mm-hmm. um, expectations... Like, and like honestly, one of the reasons why I feel like the Phantom Pain has so many endings is to specifically mess with the player's sense of perception of what they've accomplished. Yeah, like because the entire and, thing- and, and to give you that constant sense, like Phantom Pain is so explicit in like textually explicit about its themes. Exactly, it's in the fucking name. It's in the name and. One of the last dramatic moments of the game is one of its main characters being exiled by his adoptive family, being literally sent to sea, screaming, you've all gone insane, you will never stop fighting. You're perpetuating an endless cycle of violence that repeats itself. Why are you doing this? And the game uses its form to just continue yeah. to to fuck with that. Like, like and it, it, pain, it, it, it literally crushed. opens with the phrase, like, uh, what is it? A, uh, just another day in a war without end? Oh my god, I gotta play that game again. It's so, it's so good, man. Oh my it's, god, it's so awesome. It's so good. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not ashamed of my words and deeds. Yeah. Well, but, no. <laughs> but, you know... Uh, but yeah, like, I don't know, like, it's, I I think, I think the end point for, like, I, like, I feel like Dragon Quest XI saying, like, here's another dozen hours in, after the back half is almost like a traditional move at this point. Yeah. Because, like, we, we've, like, the postmodern take on how are we going to do the post credit sequence are Phantom Pain. Phantom Pain is spectacular at that, because Phantom Pain is, it, I feel like there's a great deal of intent behind forcing you to play the same content again. Like, I feel like that there is there is genuine narrative intent behind making you repeat missions. Yeah. I agree that, like, it's economically cynical that there is, like, oh, man, we need to flesh out this game. But and it's maybe, a grind. Like, it's kind of an unfun grind, but... So is war. So is war, man. So is war, man. Like, I... <laughs> I, like, I see the point there, but the other one is, like, Nier Automata yep. and the original Nier. Like, where, where they say, like, well, why should it just be... They, like, they, they do exactly what you say. Like, they totally break free of the bonds of, you know, narrative structure from cinema and openly make fun of it just because Yoko Taro thinks it's funny? Like... like- <laughs> And not just that, to the point where, like, there is a message from Square PR saying, <laughs> the game's not over yet. We promise. Keep we promise. playing. Keep, keep going. Yeah. Um, I, like it's a which game. is a really interesting statement to make because, like, someone, like, people like us, um, we would expect something like this to happen. We're like, oh, Yokotaro's batshit crazy. Of course he's going to do this. Yeah. But, like,. That game blew up in a way that I don't even think Square was expecting. Yeah. And I think that they were probably grateful to have a message like that for people who aren't prepared yeah, and plus, to and go on there, that journey. There are people that miss that sort of thing. You know, like, I, I know tons of people that played through the A ending of Nier Automata and genuinely thought it was over. Like, they didn't even see that, oh, you should keep going. You should keep going. Um... I don't know about you. This is a, a, a 
I, I, th I consider this a deficiency in myself as a player and like as an audience member, but it, especially with open world games, if I get to the end of an open world game and there are things I haven't completed and I've com like finished the narrative, I ain't going back in there. I don't care how many side quests are left. I'm not doing it. Like Yakuza, I think that my completion rate in every Yakuza game I've ever played, like, tops out around 40, like, between 30 and 40%. Because, you know, you have to do every side quest, get every item, get every collectible in those games to hit 100. And I'm out. And, yeah. Like, like you don't touch premium adventure or anything like that? Screw that. No, no way. <laughs> I'm, I'm, mm, you're, I'm not gonna, you're, you're not going to hold Haruka's hand or... I'm, I'm not doing... As you walk around Kamurocho... <laughs> No, <laughs> taking her, taking her to Smile Burger. I'm no, I'm out. I'm gone. And like even Dragon Quest Eight, Dragon Quest Eight, like one of my favorite games of all time. When you beat Dragon Quest Eight, and like all Dragon Quests, the end boss is Satan. Everybody, surprise! It's the devil. Uh, the devil. You, the devil. Fruits uh, of the, the devil. Fr the fruits of the devil. <laughs> when you beat him. <laughs> You get the ending, and, like, Dragon Quest Eight echoes the original Dragon Quest, the, the princess that you've been with the entire time, her and uh, the king, who is a little troll man, and the princess, who's been turned into a horse, turned back into humans, and she goes off to her royal wedding. The end. If you replay it, the post-game is you have access to, like, this crazy hard, like, continent. You can you can suddenly go to this place where the enemies are vicious and find the like ancient line of warriors that your main character came from and do this side quest, find out about your destiny, that you're like the last of this lineage, which Dragon Quest XI just starts there. Dragon Quest XI <laughs> opens with being like you're the last of this lineage. Dragon Quest VIII, you don't find this shit out until after you've beaten the game. And then that's you... that's so wild. Yeah, it's really weird. It's it's <laughs> profoundly weird. And the thing is, is once you've done it, like you go there, find those things out, get some like the most powerful uh, weapon and armor in the game. You just beat the game again. It's not like it's extending the narrative. Like you just get extra stuff. You beat the same final boss and the final experience, and then you get a different ending. And huh. I actually don't prefer that like i would rather it be something like near or what you're describing in dragon quest 11 where it's like here's the conclusion and then it continues yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh yeah. so do you do you go back in yakuza do you go hold haruka's hand i want to do that like i i keep <laughs> meaning to go back to yakuza zero and kawami and finish them uh, um, yeah what, did you finish it's, the stories, or did you like, or are you like finishing up side quests and shit like that? Uh, I if I had more time, yeah. and I wasn't trying to play more games, I like there is a small but very vocal part of me that's like, what if you just like played Yakuza Zero so you got the platinum, <laughs> and then why don't you just go to Yakuza? Kwame and get the platinum. Yeah. And hey, Kwame 2 just came out. Why don't you get the platinum in that? <laughs> Three's gonna be going on PS4. You could do that. And just like spend like three years of my life just, just playing Yakuza games. Yeah. 
alas. Interspersed with Metal Gear Solid Five. Well, you know. Well, in, uh, in, in Fist of the North Star, Lost Paradise, uh, yes. you, you'll be able to go back after the ending and tell people you're still already dead. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanna Wait, is that clear. true? Is that, like, I, is that I, a joke? I, I, I'm pretty sure it's just a joke. Okay. I, I, might, I might be wrong. I have never... I know Fist of the North Star as like a series purely by reputation. Yeah, and same. like I, I like even far before the you're already dead thing was an internet meme, I knew it as just like an anime nerd meme. Right. And the you you and I have talked many times before about us being like nineties teenager nerds who are like anime, ninja scroll, sweet, awesome. Uh and you know, I never on those lonely Friday nights at Blockbuster, they weren't lonely. I was there with my girlfriend, and we were just renting swingers, and so I married an axe murderer over and over again. We never, we never decided to get Fist of the North Star. It was like we. It's a, it. It's like it was the kind of thing that like you looked. It was part of that era of anime when like all the stuff that was coming from Japan was the kind of stuff that was like. These are cartoons, but they're not for kids. Right. Like and, Ninja Scroll and like like Ghost in the Shell to an extent. Like that that I think like at yeah. least broke through the barrier of like, oh, like this stuff is like way more than just like shit blowing up. <laughs> right. It's not like, just blood, boobs, butts, muscles, like all of those things. Uh I I do I've always loved the aesthetic though. I love the, like, filthy John Carpenter, George Miller-esque thing that was going on with Fist yeah. of the North Star. Yeah, like, like, very 80s sort of grungy look that, like, I, that yeah. and uh, Va- Vampire Hunter D had that, too. Everybody, Everybody's wearing football pads. Everybody yep. has taken punk rock, like, spikes and studs and put them on football pads. And I love that shit. Like, I love that, that... What... Japan was taking from North Mad American Max. pop yeah. culture was delightful to me. Uh, so I've been I've been playing Fist of the North Star Lost Paradise for the past week, and I've only played a little. Like I have not gotten deep into it because I'm also playing Dragon Quest right now. Uh, but so Fist of the North Star is for anybody who's not familiar with this game and is like, why are you guys talking about some anime bullshit? This is the first. <laughs> Come on. They know us. They know. They know. Susan's not here to yell at us and tell us that we can't talk just endlessly about anime bullshit. Well, guess what? <laughs> anime bullshit all the way down. It's like a Native American creation myth, except instead of it being turtles all the way down under the earth, it's just all anime bullshit. All the time. All po- the way. Poorly translated Vita cases. There it is. Uh, so this is the first game... That is not Yakuza, made by the Yakuza team since Binary Domain six years ago. Except, spoiler warning, it is just a Yakuza it's, game. Yeah. Fist of the North Star, Lost Paradise, is just Yakuza. I wrote about this today for Escapist Magazine. Uh, plug, 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 plug. <laughs> uh, when you start it, it is so delightful to just immediately, like, you're just thrown into a fight, first thing, as the main character, Kenshiro, and it is the exact same combat mechanics. The exact yeah. same combat mechanics, the exact same dodge move, the same light attack, the same heavy attack, 
all of it, and instead of doing, like, the curb stomp moves that Kazuma Kiryu does, you have the pressure point moves, which are the, like, it's the famous martial art. Yeah, or, like, the, 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 the blow up real good. Yeah, you, he, he touches a guy, and then they explode, and it is deeply satisfying in Fist of the North Star. <laughs> in the same way that Yakuza is, like, really deeply satisfying when you like, smash a bicycle into somebody's head, and it goes slow-mo, the same thing happens, except you get a big, ridiculous word describing the move you just did, <laughs> superimposed over it. And, like, within 30 seconds, I was like, oh boy, it's just Yakuza, except everybody's legs are way too long, and they're wearing football pads. Let's do this shit! And then, you, like, you get through the tutorial sequence, you get upstairs... And there's a giant, like, there's classic 80s anime villain. He's got long blonde hair. He's wearing, like, a vaguely militaristic European, like, jerkin. It's great. And then your main character, Kenshiro, opens his mouth, and it is the same voice actor as Kazuma Kiryu. So it's not just, it feels like Yakuza. It's not just that, like, the combat is like Yakuza. Like, there's Kaz coming out, and I was like, it, it threw me out of things at first. I was like, no, bullshit. Kazuma Kiryu would never wear boots that long. It's just, absolutely not. But then, like, as soon as he was like, all I've ever wanted to do was fight for what is right, and I was like, oh my god, it's Yakuza wearing a Halloween costume. I'm <laughs> delighted by what's happening here. And then, like, it just cascades. You get to the giant city that is, like, you know, uh, sort of a Thunderdome-esque place where there are yeah. people... Yeah, it's, it's the game's Kamurocho, and it's, it's filled it, with people that you talk to, and arcade games, and... And stuff! And yeah. it's just, you could, like, even the save points are the same. The same S that you see over <laughs> phone booths... The, the menus, too, right? Like, I, are, I, pl I played the demo, and I opened that menu, and I was like, oh. Yeah. I know and this. <laughs> it, like, you, you go to the save point, and it's like, would you like to use the item box? I was like, wait a second, wait. you guys. <laughs> item box? You kooks. Uh, but so, I, I am I'm adoring it so far. And it is nice to see, like, uh, this team produce something that's so aesthetically different. Because even Binary Domain, Binary Domain was, you know, this wild science fiction shooter but it, it still had the same visual style that you see in the Yakuza games. Like, everybody is sort of like this hyper-realistic uh, human being, and they're, they're trying to go for this, this realism. That's the studio's signature style. It's nice to see them doing something that's so explicitly anime-y. I, I mm -hmm. really like the look. Um, but the one thing that you and I were talking about this the night I started playing it, and this is what I was writing about today, is, I, like, people would look at the Yakuza team and be like, oh, man, it sucks that you guys didn't do something more original or branch out and try something different. And I'm like, no! I think copying your already successful formula and saying, what other kind of story and setting can we just lift this entire structure from and then use it again to do this other thing? I think that is awesome and it kills me that more things don't do what they've done here with fist of the north star yeah and like uh one of the things that um i like to bring up and we were talking about um 
we were texting back and forth about this was that like for a while Assassin's Creed was my like it was my television show. Yeah. And like I was like I, I don't know if they can keep this pace up releasing a new game every year but like I liked it because you would get it was like getting a new season of a show you would mm-hmm. play it you'd like the narrative would advance a little bit you'd go on adventures and stuff but ultimately it just the kinds of th- games that they were making do not mesh with the production schedule you can't create an entirely new environment with entirely new combat and movement mechanics and skill trees and all that stuff and like i mean granted they make these every they were like making them every two or three years or something and piggybacking kind of like how call of duty does it and they had like 18 different studios working on these things in tandem. Yeah, I right? think I think Assassin's but, Creed 4, the Black Flag, uh, yeah. in, in 2014, yeah. 2013, 2013. That's the one where I think the staff reached 600 people yeah. in studios in three continents. And yeah. it was like, oh, your boat mechanics are awesome. Too bad your game is soulless. Yeah, well, and like buggy, and like you, like I here for how frequently the Yakuza team cranks these games out. Never once have I fallen through the floor. No, not no. once. Nobody, nobody's ever melted or appeared where like their face is just teeth and loose eyeballs. Right, Assassin's Creed Unity style. That never, and never been a thing. I think, and I think that like having a production cycle that reused environments and stuff would be more economical and would allow them to tell better stories more rapidly. Totally. But the average gaming audience as it is, or was back when those games were, were sort of at their height during the Ezio era, they would have gotten crucified during the Etsy era. The when Etsy, Etsio yeah. had an Etsy store. He's <laughs> like, buy my fine Italian. Yeah. Coke. We, me and Da Vinci, we've partnered. Uh, no, like, like, they would have gotten crucified. Yeah. Because people, oh, you guys are just reusing maps. It's just content. Like, like no. But, like, there was a story that came out that Far Cry Primal just is the map from Far Cry 4. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I remember, like, there was, like, I don't know if there was a, I would call it a shitstorm, but there was a mild, like... Oh, yeah, it was, it was a thing, and people credited Primal's failure with the fact that it was just... A, co- a carbon copy of the previous game, which I feel like is such a disservice to Far Cry Primal because of all of the things that Ubisoft was publishing at the time, that was the most interesting. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that if you didn't tell me, oh yeah, I wouldn't have known. Yeah, and like you know, in in another thing, in fairness to Ubisoft, I, you know, part of the problem was they they started copying themselves so intensely across all of their games at the time that it became difficult to distinguish between them like the only difference between watchdogs assassin's creed and far cry was assassin's creed was the one with the people in the olden times and they had swords far cry was the one that was first with the guns and you had the guns and why and watchdogs was the one where everyone was an asshole (laughs) that was the distinction between the three games but yeah. like, yeah, I like it's it's dumb, like to excoriate Far, Far Cry Primal for doing the economical thing and saying, 
this is already a great setting. Why don't we just do something different with it? Yeah. Like, that's it's dumb. That's an awesome thing to do with because, what you've like, already built. Because the important thing... Yes, it's good to have variety. But you can make that variety happen in ways that don't involve rebuilding your entire game from the ground up every time. You can like, do the way Yakuza, The way yeah. Yakuza does it is through the minigames, yeah. through the the writing and the quests and the like the the way that it changes things just enough to make entries feel different and fresh without reinventing the wheel. Yeah. Um and I think that we're gonna get another dose of this with Judge Eyes when it comes mm-hmm. out next year because it's another game from the Yakuza team. Uh very completely different kind of game. It is uh you it is you play a lawyer a disgraced lawyer who is also a detective. You're a lawyer who curb stomps people. Yeah, you're a lawyer, who curb, but like his fighting style is different. He's much faster yeah. and more lithe. Uh, he also needs to focus on tailing people to get uh, clues for this investigation that he's trying to solve to to crack this case. Um, and the thing is, is that it's set in the same city that Yakuza is. It's set in Kamurocho. And, like, you could say, oh, well, that's just lazy. But I think that it, it's brilliant. Yeah. Because, one, it's it's just, it's it's smart economics. It means that they can make more games with the same assets and tell different kinds of stories without breaking sets down uh, and starting fresh. But, like, it also makes Kamurocho feel like a real place. Yeah. Where things happen... A place where things happen that aren't entirely dependent on the characters who inhabit it. It's awesome, and like and, it makes it feel very alive. And like, th- like to see Judge Eyes being sort of the the grand realization of the experiments that this team has already engaged in. With you know saying, all right, well, Yakuza Four is going to be about all of these different characters, and Yakuza Five is going to be this ridiculous operatic exploration of way different characters where you're going to be a pop star and you're going to be a disgraced baseball player. And to, to see them say like, we're going to take what we've built and at the same time, develop something totally different in fist of the North star and be like, what if we applied this, this wonderful system we built to like a crazy old anime institution while in secret, they're like, we're finally going to let Kazuma Kiryu go. And we're gonna let the mob go, and we're gonna just do something totally different. We're gonna do do, do like a weird John Grisham uh, by way of Takashi Miike, yeah, uh, crime the, drama. And they're still doing the Yakuza thing too. Like they have that new game coming out with the new protagonist. So it's like everyone gets their cake. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I just, I wish. I just think a lot of it comes down to what the team and ultimately the company that is funding the team and greenlighting these projects, like what is valuable to them yeah, and what kind of stories are they trying to tell? And when a lot of these open world games, I think would not survive reusing the same maps without taking a good hard look at what is important to them. And I think that like Yakuza is able to do it and Yakuza team is able to do it because they just, they, man, they know how to write a story. Yeah, man. They do. They know how to write characters. They know how to yeah. write interesting moments. And it, 
that's not to say that like narrative is the is the thing that pushes this entire model forward. I mean, no, you know, like there's there is Omega Force and the whole Dynasty Warriors series. Like right. Omega Force has made their own genre of video game. I don't know how point. many times I fought the Yellow Turban Rebellion, my dude. And it's like, always awesome. Like it's, it's yeah. always awesome. It's always different. And oh, like now we're gonna take Fire Emblem characters. And you can do your weird little dating sim. And now we're going to take Zelda characters. And we're going to allow you to have, like, wildly different play styles in this super aesthetically dense, rich Hyrule world. And we're going to do Gundams. And it's going to be deep anime nerd lore. And we're going to do Attack on Titan. It's going to be grappling hook shit. Like, you can copy yourself and do things that are super, super cool that are... You can go the narrative route like the Yakuza team. You can go the mechanical route like the Dynasty Warriors team. And, you know, or you can just do it the the cynical way. Like uh, Assassin's Creed. What was the second pirate one? That was like... Ro- oh, Rogue? Rogue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, it was better than Unity. Yeah, it was better than... It was better than Unity. Anything. I, I've had bowel movements that were better than Unity. <laughs> That's... <laughs> It's not. It's Dude, not saying, I, 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 t- side note, I cannot tell you how liberating it is to not have to care about Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It's got to feel great. It's got to uh, feel really good. So, like, uh, like, there's a part of me that wants to play it at some point, just to check it out, sure. get my toes in. But, like, I can wait. <laughs> and yeah. that's... Awesome. <laughs> that's a that's a game that'll be five dollars within a year, and you'll be good. And I don't know, dude. Like Ubisoft is actually, they have found a way to keep the cost up on their games. Like, and I think a lot of it just has to do with the way that they roll out their season passes now, and the way um, that they like their games are a lot more uh, living, sure, so to speak. So it's like, well why are we going to drop this game to 20 when we're still updating it? Like there's still a reason for people to come in and play it now. Mm. Um, like uh, the cheapest I've seen Assassin's Creed um, origins, origins a year after release, like 60 bucks for the gold edition, which has no shit. The season pat, like, like all the content, but still like that's like, it used to be yeah. Black Friday would roll around, and that shit was like thirty dollars. <laughs> Man, so. I'll, I'll tell you, I I have never, I have never been like a season pass kind of guy. I've never been like, I've never. This goes back to the post game conversation that we were having. When I finished the meat of a story, I'm not going back in there. I've done it. Like, previous to this year, I think I have gotten the DL, like, story single-player DLC for a game twice. And the first time I ever did it was the story DLC for Assassin's Creed 2, the first Ezio game. And it oh, the one that finished the story? Such trash that I was like, no, I'm never doing this again, uh, until they did it with Deus Ex, uh, Mankind, not Mankind. You and... Human oh, Revolution. The- the, okay. Yeah, no, not the bad one. Not the bad, the good one. Yeah, right. the one the one that was a good game right. and not really stupid. <laughs> uh I will say though That's an unfinished game. That's that by is the game. way. Yeah, that game is all post-credit sequence because Mankind Divided doesn't start or end. Like there was just <laughs> another game 
that, that was supposed to we take were supposed place. to get and never did <sighs> uh yeah man there so actually just today i bought a massive single player expansion for a game uh it's the first time i've done that since 2011 when when the human revolution dlc came out i got torna the golden age for xenoblade chronicles 2 Ooh. Uh, I still need to go back and finish that God finish that game. game. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's now that you finished Dragon Quest XI, go finish that game. I'm, Put it I on do... easy. Finish it. It's amazing. Uh, but the other one, I don't need another hundred hour game, right? Yeah, but don't you already have like sixty hours in it? Uh, I got to chapter five. Yeah, so. just finish chapter five. Just finish it. It's awesome. Switch it to easy mode. Get it. No, in it's there. not easy. Oh, uh, just do it. It's, okay. it's great. It's great. <laughs> it's, uh, it's real good. The other one, I think this I think this might be the first time I ever buy a season pass for a game. First time I'm ever going to buy a season pass for a game is Spider-Man PS4. Because I love that game so goddamn much that now that I finished it, I was like, I think that that was a perfect story. You did everything that you needed to. I think there is the perfect amount of open world nonsense content in Spider-Man. And I'm ready for more. And you were starting to say that like open world games sort of miss the opportunity that is inherent in copying yourself, just just going back in there, using the structure you already have in the way that you know Fist of the North Star borrows from uh borrows from Yakuza. I would be per if somebody told me that in six months, not even a full year. Spider-Man 2 PS4 is coming out, I'd buy it. And if you said, oh, it's just the exact same New York, it's just new story and different missions, I would buy that because I think it's so goddamn good. I loved every part of it. Uh, yeah. You, you were, you hate superhero shit, Dave. You hate I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I hate it. It just does not resonate with me at all right <laughs> you know like I, again it's like i don't begrudge people for liking it i get why people like it there are things that i like about it i just if i want to if i'm going to invest in something personally which i like to do with the story because that's what you do with the story you invest yourself into characters and plot and like that's how you get derived that's at least how i derive enjoyment from something i need to feel stakes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know i need to feel like something's on the line and the way that like comic book shit nine times out of ten deals with that stuff it never feels real to me mm. it always feels it's like okay because i mean you know how it goes like i remember being a kid in the 90s when superman died and then he fucking didn't like you know what i mean like there's no they'll always resurrect the character because they, they gotta sell comic books. They can't not sell Superman comics. There's always gonna be a Superman. There's always gonna be, like, blah, 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 blah. Spider-Man's a little different, though. Yeah, Spider-Man's... Spider-Man is And I've always felt a little different. different yeah. yeah. Because the connection, the stakes there aren't Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. It's the people around him. Yeah. And it's how him being a superhero 
affects their lives and the lives of the people of the city. And that, to me, is what Spider-Man PS4 gets so right. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And, like, the funny thing is, is something that's great about Spider-Man comics is that unlike, uh, you know, like, oh, Superman dies. Superman's not going to stay dead. That's bullshit. Over the 50, you know, 55 years that Spider-Man comics have been published at this point, like, these things have existed for a really long time, like all of these comic book characters. But Spider-Man, very impressively, has sort of gone through these arcs where it's, this is what Spider-Man is going to be for 10 to 15 years. And whoever is doing, whoever is writing it over that period is allowed to really change things up and really mess with it. And eventually, after like a, almost a full generation of human life, they'll <laughs> find a way to reset it in some way and maintain most of the continuity, but modernize it and bring Peter Parker up to date so that people between the ages of, you know, five and 45 can engage in it. And, it, like, that's been really consistent. It's one of, like, so there are stakes for all of those people that surround Spider-Man, like you're describing it. Uh, you know, in, in the 90s, like, they went banana pants 90s, and Spider-Man had clones! And it turned out the guy that had been Spider-Man for, you know, the past however many years wasn't actually Peter Parker. It was just, like, the real Peter Parker was a homeless dude because a villain replaced him, and the guy that thought he was Peter Parker was a clone. And there was, like, a clone with a disfigured face who looked like had Mel Gibson hair and wanted to beat the shit out of him. And all, it was crazy. It was nuts. And instead of that ending with it's like, he's Peter Parker again, and everything's cool. Like, the guy who'd been Spider-Man for all these years was like, get the fuck out. You're gone. Peter Parker's you're getting d- his life. You're fucking right. done. You're fucking done, kid. Get Go off to the hills. Have some children. Go. <laughs> get out of here. And, like, they kept it that way for a while. <laughs> uh, and so, like, the most recent arc of Spider-Man just ended. The same guy, Dan Slott, has been sort of driving the narrative train of the comics for 10 years now. And his his run just came to a conclusion. And a lot of the elements from his run have been used here in Spider-Man PS4. Like the very, very first arc in Dan Slott's run all the way back in 2008 was Aunt May, Peter Parker's long-suffering aunt, uh, and, uh, you know, the one person who doesn't realize he's Spider-Man until inevitably she does. Spoilers. Aunt May Spider-Man. Uh, she's working for a homeless shelter called Feast that is run by a secret mob boss named Mr. Negative who can literally invert people's personalities. And so it was really cool to see them take that sort of character richness and plug it into a game and say, like, hey, we're going to copy the things that work from this, but we're also going to keep the emotional stakes, and we're going to have the threat of emotional turmoil, the threat of death, the threat of, you know, success. Like, the idea that at the beginning of it, 
Peter Parker is a sad sack at the start of Spider-Man PS4. Things are going well for him at work, but his job goes really bad. <laughs> and his <laughs> boss and mentor uh, goes nuts and gets robot arms. Surprise, everybody. Spoiler. Dr. Octopus is the bad guy. All the... <laughs> the all... See, <laughs> and it's interesting because the way that the Spider-Man game takes a lot of the tropes and tweaks them and just... Just a little bit. Yeah. Just enough. I like the the entire time of the back of my mind, I'm like, are they actually gonna make Octavius a bad guy in this one? Are they yeah. setting this up for the next one? Is he going to be one? Because uh, you don't know. Yeah. And I feel like the way that they and again, it's one of those things where like the length of the game and the space that it lets that relationship breathe mm. with and Peter develop. and Octavius and develop. Uh, over time, like, kind of makes you doubt yep. that it's going to go there. Until it, it does. It, but It suffers from a little of that, like, the inevitable time dilation issue that oh, affects yeah. every open world game, where things, because it doesn't know how you're going to approach progressing the narrative, things that should be happening with a lot of time or days or weeks between them in terms of character development take place, like, really suddenly. Yeah. Like, Otto Octavius is just like, we're screwed! I'm not gonna be able to, like, get any funding for our secret lab! And then by the end of the day, he's got not just new tech, but entirely new... <laughs> like, all of his gear is, like, hooked up. And... <laughs> like, when did, when did that shit happen? But, like, it, because it's presented with such humanity and because it's written so well, it still plays... Yeah. Uh, how did you feel? How did you feel about the ending, which which is a, as blatant a there's gonna be a Spider-Man two as you can get with a with a game ending. Oh, I loved it. You loved it. Yeah. Oh I yeah. It. It's like it. <sighs> I loved everything. Like I, the only thing that I would say that I didn't really like, but I still liked, was just that like a lot of the side activities get really repetitive, especially yeah. those crimes. But, like, the story, I was... Like, this is the best superhero story I've read, consumed ever in yeah. a long time. I don't know. Like, it just... Like, I can't think of the last... I can't think of the last time a Marvel movie has made me this enthralled. Mm. Um, at least, like, one made by Disney... Um, I mean, there's that scene in X-Men where she's Blade, like... Blade 2? Yeah, Blade 2. It's Blade 2. Uh, I was going to say that scene in X-Men where she's like, you know what happens to a frog that gets struck by lightning? And um, apparently that's the one line written by Joss Whedon that actually stayed no. in the film. According to... Yeah, Joss like he did, Whedon made that happen? No, he... he uh, uh, reading some stuff online, apparently the scuttlebutt is that he did script doctoring for the first movie. And oh everything... God was thrown out except for the part where Wolverine flips off uh, Scott Summers, Cyclops, the uh, Marsden, uh, that guy, and the part where, and, and the joke, the the horrible joke that doesn't land. That can't be right. I, I got it. So we're going to get to the bottom of, of this. Of course, I, this could be like a wax house baby scenario no. where like someone just made it up on the internet. I'm talking to David Hayter in two weeks. We are going to ask... <laughs> The man who wrote X-Men, where this goddamn line comes from, we're getting to the bottom of it. Yes. Uh, 
Yeah, man, I love I loved it too. I loved I, I think it's the only final boss in a triple A game that I thought was perfect. In I mean it's it's a little ever. like like once you get the rhythm of it down, like all the animations are the same. It's yeah. it's a little canned. But man, it looks so good. And feels so good. It like feels it looks- so good. And the and the thing is, it's like ultimately, I think that the that that situ like that final confrontation is so easy and somewhat canned because it's less about the the physical conflict, yeah, and more about the back the dial the back and forth dialogue between Peter and Octavius about like, uh, you know, I looked up to you mm-hmm. and. And Octavius is like, well, we could do this together. Like, no one appreciates my genius. And like it Oh, it's oh, it's so good. Yeah, man. I like you know, you were just talking about Metal Gear Solid 4. Metal Gear Solid 4 tries to have a final boss that is almost identical, uh, like in terms of visual execution to what you right. get at the end of Spider-Man. Except it's not any fun. Like it's like all of the emotional stakes are similar. But it's not fun to just sit there and, like, slam on the same button over and over again for face punches. Right. Doing face punches at the end of Spider-Man feels so cathartic. You're like, yeah, you you failed me, Dr. Octopus. You failed the city. You failed everyone. You're not a good surrogate dad. This sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I have issues. I hate Uh. that this has to happen. I'm going to pull off your brain arm controls. This is it. It's happening. But it rules. Uh, So I I told you this when I finished the game, is this Dan Slott run on Spider-Man over the past 10 years that just concluded. This borrowed so heavily... Uh, from that run, I have a feeling I know where the second game is gonna go, and I really hope they're willing to go that dark. Like, Spider-Man, PlayStation 4, like, they... spoilers, everybody, Aunt May beefs it. They just, they kill Aunt May right in the game. No Uncle Ben getting shot at the beginning. They skip all that nonsense, but Aunt May dies in this game. And... So they're they're clearly willing to at least throw a punch in terms of audience expectations. So what happens after the Mr. Negative arc and Dan Slott's run is Dr. Octopus does become like sort of the big bad in Peter Parker's life at that point. And like the Dr. Octopus in this game, he is dying of a terminal illness. Uh, and his solution to that problem is to create technology that allows him to map his entire mind and brain pattern into another body. And he basically implants himself in Peter Parker's Spider-Man body and traps Peter Parker in his dying body and just lets him die and declares himself the superior Spider-Man and is just like, screw you, Peter. You never lived your life properly. You were always struggling with work and relationships. I'm going to be a better hero and a better man than you. And it's like that for a couple of years in the comics. That's so dark. It's awesome. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, that, just, it, that just sounds relentless. It is relentless. and But also funny. Like, I, I know that that sounds like a little bit of a contradiction. Like, it is relentlessly dark. 
So is, are we gonna are we gonna bring back uh, disco dancing Connor Oberst uh, <laughs> Spider Man? <laughs> no, when? is that it's, what's gonna happen? Or? It's it's more like like it's really funny to see like and it's comic book Doctor Octopus, so he's a little bit more sort of demonstrative than theatrical. Think more like uh, uh, the way he's portrayed in the second Sam Raimi movie. Uh, which is uh, a freaking astounding performance by... Alfred Molina? Alfred Molina, thank you. The guy from Maverick, Dave. The guy... (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say the guy who eats it in the first five minutes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh my god, he beefs it so hard at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Alfred Molina rules. Why isn't he in more things? He's so good. He's sort of that... he's, He's similar to that, but like Dr. Octopus in Spider Man's body will just like go up to the rest of the Avengers and be like, you suck, Captain America! Why don't you actually put one of these criminals down for a change and just stab Whoa! Them? Yeah. It gets crazy. <laughs> like, Spider-Man and Mary Jane are on the fritz at the beginning of that arc, and Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man's body just shows up at her place, and he's like, I regret everything. You should come over to my place tonight. Wear something nice. We're gonna have dinner together. Yeah. It's nuts. And he just... Jesus Christ. Yeah, and, like, Dr. Octopus goes on this tear of... He creates a insane surveillance state in the city of New York. He, like, puts, like, little spider drones everywhere and has goons being his, like, vigilante enforcers. That's not believable. That doesn't happen. Oh, no. Why, why 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 would police actually set up creepy surveillance and use paramilitary gear uh in real (laughs) cities that would never happen uh and at the exact same time his solution in peter parker's life is to be like you've wasted your scientific genius and he starts a corporation that is essentially like an apple proxy and starts yeah like this is exactly and he turns into an even more giant (laughs) villain and the the end of it obviously is him learning about like what it actually means to be a hero uh, and trying to tear down the horrible modern evils that he's reinforced. But, I, man, I hope they do this. I hope they do this in the game. Because they seem to be telegraphing it a little bit. Was like, Miles Morales in, in that run, too? So, you get into a weird place with that. Because Miles Morales is... Uh, look... We're not we're not gonna go down this too too deep comic <laughs> rabbit hole. Uh, this show does eventually have This to is end. why I can't this is I can't. I can't do it. I know, dude. I, I know. can't do it. I don't have time. <laughs> Life yeah. is too short. Miles Anthony. Morales is technically from a separate universe. That's right. Is, uh, yeah. There's cause there's Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah, he's he's Ultimate Spider-Man. Ugh. Yeah, I don't care. Yeah, no, it doesn't matter. This is what I'm talking. <laughs> but just like, give me the bite-sized story, man, with all the stuff that it's about. Dan Slott, in it, dude, and do Dan, it well. You don't understand. Dan Slott's Spider-Man gets so fucking weird. So after all of that Doctor Octopus stuff, and Peter Parker becomes Peter Parker again, Spider-Man finds out. This is where we're going to end the show, everybody. I'm just going to leave with this explanation. And we're going to thank everybody for coming. So wait, so Peter Parker doesn't even, like, die for real? So he comes back. Okay. Like, his his soul lives on in Dr. Octopus's body, right? He he regains control of his life. But then after that, he finds out that, like, 
He has his powers because every universe needs a totemic embodiment of the spider. Like this spider god head figure. And all universes throughout the multiverse have a Spider-Man or spider totem. There are these ancient beings from one universe that live by eating spider totems. So Spider-Man has to cross over in all these other universes and team up with all the other Spider-Men to defeat these bad guys that are eating Spider-Men. And when I say that every Spider-Man exists, the Marvel vs. Capcom 2 Spider-Man appears, Tobey Maguire shows up, Andrew Garfield shows up, the Italians movie Spider-Man shows up. All of them have to go into the 1960s cartoon to defeat a soul-sucking vampire person with a Spider-Man who's, like, from a weird, Sid Vicious punk rock universe and one that's from a creepy noir film universe and the Marvel vs. Capcom Spider-Man. Yeah, it's... It gets re it gets even weirder than Doctor Octopus taking position. That's all body. very silly. Now yeah. I'm gonna go watch Dragon Ball Z. Now I'm gonna go. <laughs> it all sounds very silly. It's all. Let me tell you about Metal Gear Solid Peace. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, everybody. I I think that brings us to the home stretch. Dave, who made this show possible, and why do we love them? Yes, uh, for all of you uh, folks at home listening now, this is a Patreon-backed show. Go to patreon.com slash continuepodcast, and for $5 a month, you get access to exclusive uh, podcast content, access to our Discord server, and everyone who backs us at $10 and above gets a special shout-out on the show like I'm going to do right now. Here we go. We got Mirko Rico Terreno, Ryan Brady, Oh, ah, Mouse, John, Nick Grugan, Double Taco, Yaddle, Gluttony One of Seven, Peter, Ryan Mance, Derek Sanskrit, Adam Condra, Putnik Santiago, Matthew Peters, Michael Coffey, Thierry Belair, Eric Van Quill, Olmec, Matthew... Wait, nope, that's not right. It's uh, the Fancy <laughs> Manatee, Denton Brock, Elio Dare, Oasis of Optimism, Ludwig Kitzman, Stormshot, Francisco Arias Guimaraes, Kalen Houston, Axel Olsen Mangholt, Tyler Nilsson, Shane Nilsson, Jacob Christos, Chris Cook, Skip Dippity, Tim Chesson, uh, Bullet Bobong, Daniel Squire, Tom, and Damian Michalese. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys. Supporting uh, the show, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we can't tell you what it means to us. If you want to become a supporter of the show, you go to patreon.com slash continue podcast. Honestly, even better than giving us a dollar if you are listening to this and have not given us a review on iTunes. Giving us a review on iTunes helps this show so much. It gets more people listening. It spreads the word about this thing, and that would be the best way to help us keep making this action. Uh, and also, if you do give us a review or you tweet about the show and share an episode with people, you're entered into a drawing for a free game. Dave, who's going to win one? And uh, the winner this week is Francisco Arias Guimaraes for Yay. leaving us a review on iTunes. So there you go. thank you very much. Uh, awesome. Yeah, just hit us up on Twitter or in Discord or whatever, and we'll get your Steam code to you. Please do do that. And speaking of Twitter. <laughs> he said, dude. Yeah. Dude. I'm sorry. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash continue pod. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at a John Agnello, and you can catch me every single day at my day job, escapistmagazine.com. Uh, and you can catch my, my streams. I stream twice a week these days at 12 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash escapistmagazine. David Hayter's going to be on the show. We're going to get the... Get some hater time? We're going to get to the bottom of this bullshit with this, <laughs> this toad line. We're going to figure out what the hell is going on there. Dave, where can the people find you? Find me on Twitter at David Robots, where I'm hanging out. Where he's chilling? I, I lounge. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I loiter. I loiter on Twitter at David Robots. I would like to point out. I don't. I, I in our we our most recent iTunes review from Dantron is slow jams, game talk, and random discussions about a host of subjects like women's hairstyles in movies. <laughs> that is a thing that happened to the world, and I, I can't. Really I can't it. unsee it now. Yeah, now you see it everywhere, don't you? Yeah, that's right. The hair, the hair's a thing. All right, everybody. We'll see you in two weeks uh, with the full trio in tow. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.